Core of the Bible Podcast number 87, following the examples of righteousness lived by Noah and Abraham. Welcome to the Core of the Bible weekly podcast, where we go a little deeper into topics taken from the daily articles. My name is Steve, and I'll be your host as we explore the message of the Bible reduced to its simplest form. Today, we're going to be looking at the topic of integrity and how when we walk before God with integrity and righteousness, we're living by faith in a way that pleases him. In Genesis 6 verse 9, it says, this is the account of Noah and his descendants. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. He walked habitually with God. So from this description of Noah, we can begin to paint a portrait of what type of person pleases God. Noah was righteous, blameless, and walked with God as a way of life. And by looking at each of these characteristics, we can draw some application for our own lives as we seek to honor and magnify God as his representatives in this world. Now, Noah is remembered, obviously most famously, for building an ark and surviving a great flood. But most people don't realize that he's the first person in the Bible to be named as righteous. The Hebrew word for righteous is tzaddik. A tzaddik is a person who is considered just and righteous in conduct and character. Other contexts of the word include describing someone who is upright, honest, virtuous, or pious. It's a word commonly used of good kings or judges who faithfully dispense justice and fairness. So we need to discuss this idea of righteousness in a little more detail than the other characteristics of Noah because in most Christian circles today, righteousness is typically viewed as something that is only conferred on an individual from God as a bestowal of a righteous state that they did not possess previously. And this perspective comes largely from the Apostle Paul writing about the legal aspect of a theological term called imputed righteousness, as is typically pointed out using the example of Abraham, who was accounted or considered righteous for his faith in God. And this is described in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So let's read that. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Now, from this passage has been built an entire theological framework known as justification by faith. And this was the famous cry of the reformers of the Christian faith in the 16th and 17th centuries. John Calvin has been quoted as saying, justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. Well, in more current discussions today, Dr. Kevin McFadden of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary covers the salient points of this doctrine in his article, 
10 Things You Should Know About Justification by Faith. And this was posted last year at crossway.com. And Dr. McFadden writes the following. He says, Imputation is an attempt to capture the truth of biblical statements like 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here, Paul does not mean that God actually made Christ a sinner, but that he imputed our sin to Christ's account, just as, in the parallel statement, he has imputed his own righteousness to our account. Unquote. So, this type of inputting something into our account that wasn't previously there was outlined centuries earlier by Martin Luther. And quoting Martin Luther's commentary in Galatians 3, 6, he says, Do you see how faith justifies without works? Sin lingers in us, and God hates sin. A transfusion of righteousness, therefore, becomes vitally necessary. This transfusion of righteousness we obtain from Christ because we believe in him. Unquote. Now, in my humble opinion, the passage in 2 Corinthians 5 has less to do with transfusions of righteousness and crediting accounts, and more with the responsibility of the believer's actions, as this passage of Paul regarding becoming the righteousness of God parallels his conclusion earlier on in the chapter. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, it says this, for the love of Messiah compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And this is the point that Paul appears to be making. He's relating to his audience in Corinth that the fact that Messiah died in a representative way should then spur them on to live in a way that honors him. He died for others, therefore they should live for others by dying to themselves. In this way, they would become the righteousness of God, that is, the righteous living people that God desired them to be. Okay, well, so far today we've covered a lot of heavy theological information and we're going to continue to do so. But I believe it's important for us as believers to think through these types of doctrinal issues in order for us to have a right understanding of what God expects of us as believers. So in a moment, rather than looking at just the theoretical ideas about righteousness, we're going to focus more on what the Bible texts actually say about it, which I believe will help us to gain a perspective that we can confidently act on. Right. Well, jumping back into our discussion, when we take this imputed righteousness theory, which is based on the characterization of righteousness being added to an account without it being actualized in behavior, the meaning of the word becomes, in a sense, masked. It implies that someone can be considered righteous while not really being righteous. It's simply a way God chooses to view those who place their faith in him. 
And according to this doctrine, because of a believer's faith, God decides to declare them righteous, even though they're not, by substituting the sinless life of his own son, Yeshua, for the sinful life of the sinner. In essence, this idea of imputed righteousness is all about the legal and theoretical standing of an individual before God and not about what they do or how they actually live their lives. But this is not what the Bible teaches about righteousness or what the passage about Abraham really says. This kind of theoretical and abstract thinking, it would have been foreign to early believers steeped in the concrete terminology and prose of the Hebraic scriptures and culture. Even today, when we look at the source material in Genesis that the Apostle Paul is quoting, the text says nothing about accounts or infusions, but it simply says that Abraham believed God, specifically about his promise to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. So let's take a look at that. That's in Genesis 15. And it says, But Abraham said, Lord Yahweh, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of Yahweh came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed Yahweh, and he considered it to him as righteousness. Now, the fact that Abraham simply believed what God told him was considered by God as an act of righteousness, not the change of some legal standing before him. We know Abraham was also considered a righteous individual because he was obedient to all of God's revealed instruction, most likely oral at that point, just like it was with Noah. And when God reiterated this promise of innumerable descendants to Abraham's son Isaac, God states the following in Genesis 26. He says, I will make your offspring, Isaac, as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. You see, this statement helps define God's view of righteousness. A righteous individual believes in the instruction of God, that is, taking God at his word, and then obeys it. (laughs) In God's view, believing what he says, even though it may not yet be fulfilled, is an act of righteousness as valuable as any other act of obedience. It's the sign of ultimate trust, which is considered by God as the action of a righteous person. So, returning to the passage in Romans, where Paul is explaining this event in Abram's life, in reality, I think what Paul was attempting to convey is this idea, that faith in God is equally considered a righteous act, along with all other lawful, virtuous, honest, and upright actions according to the instruction of God. Therefore, faith in God and his Messiah is considered a righteous action. And that would have been a revolutionary concept to his audience. The believers of Paul's day knew that to be a tzaddik was to be faithfully and obediently following the Torah 
or the instruction of God that has been revealed. But to do this effectively, Paul argues, requires faith, which is also a righteous action just like any other obedient action. See, Noah had believed that what God had revealed to him about a coming flood, even though it had not yet been fulfilled, was going to happen. He took it seriously, and he built a giant boat, rearranging his entire life and enterprise to commit to this faith in what God had said. And there are few greater examples of what a living faith looks like. You see, for Noah, this would mean that out of all of the others in his generation or age, he was the individual who most closely matched the ideal that God had provided up to that point because of his faith and his actions based on that faith. And while those in his day may not have had any written scripture, there were undoubtedly oral teachings that had been passed from generation to generation since the days of Adam previously. And in God's eyes, Noah was a tzaddik, a righteous individual, one who faithfully and continually walked with him. To walk with God in this sense is to live in a way that pleases him, to abide by his counsels and admonitions to be familiar with God and His ways, and to direct one's own personal affairs in agreement with God's. This is biblical righteousness. Additionally, the text says that Noah was tamim, or blameless. And this is a Hebrew term that can mean what is complete or entirely in accord with truth and fact. Noah's life was not a life of hidden agendas or misrepresentation for the sake of personal gain, but everything he did and said was based completely on truth and fact. Someone who is blameless has nothing to hide from those who would inquire into their background or motivations. And this is a life of integrity. And Yeshua described this concept in various ways throughout his ministry, and most notably in his Sermon on the Mount. For Yeshua, to live with integrity and righteousness meant to demonstrate virtue and purity that exceeded those who were merely following external commands, like the Pharisees and Sadducees. It meant to be a person of your word, simply saying yes or no, and doing what you say. It was defined as craving equity, thirsting for doing the right thing because it was personally and inwardly important. It included avoiding hypocrisy and judgment and practice, and to magnify God by letting your good deeds shine. And finally, Yeshua taught to conduct yourself with mildness and gentleness, and, if necessary, to endure harmful attacks of those who may not agree with your right actions. And all of these things could essentially be said of Noah, which is why he was considered a tzaddik. Well, from all of this, we would do well to follow in Noah's footsteps among our generation, doing what's right in the face of adversity and the corruption around us. And even though God may not task each of us with building a literal ark, we should be just as mindful of our responsibility to become the righteousness of God by positively influencing those around us through our integrity and faithful obedience to God's revealed word. Well, once again, I hope I've been able to provide you some ideas and concepts to meditate on further. 
And if you enjoyed this week's podcast, be sure to visit coreofthebible.org to read hundreds of articles on these topics and to find out more about the message of the Bible reduced to its simplest form in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Do you have questions about today's topic or comments or insights you'd like to share? Feel free to email me at coreofthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for your interest in listening today. And as always, I hope to be invited back into your headphones in another episode to come. Take care.